right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. It's so good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, we are going to start, I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. We are going to start with a reading of God's Word. So if you'll turn this morning uh, to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, and I will ask you to stand. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand. So if you put your mask on, if you're watching from home, I'm in Jeremiah chapter 1, the New International Version. And we're going to read that together. Would you stand up with me this morning? If you're having any trouble finding it, if you hit the middle of your Bible, it's in Psalms, just hang a right, you'll hit Isaiah, then Jeremiah will be the next book. So Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, I'm going to read for us here in Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for your word through the the voice of prophet Jeremiah. Lord, I pray that it would speak to us clearly today, Lord, that we are coming uh, perhaps with lamentations and suffering and sorrow this morning. Lord, let us leave today with excitement and encouragement and with hope. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You may be seated. Uh, if you are not aware, if you have read Jeremiah before, Jeremiah is a real downer. I don't know if you, you're familiar with, like, he, he's really hard to read if you've ever read uh, much of it. Like, you've got to understand, uh, he is a, a person who is called to a people who do not want to listen to him. When we're reading this in Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, Jeremiah is 18 years old. And so he is getting this call from God to go and to speak, and he will spend the rest of his life speaking to a people who do not want to hear him. But he also spends the rest of his life not forgetting this calling that was on his life and continued to follow through and follow forward with what God had called him to do as well. Uh, we, we learn from him uh, because in many ways as we read New Testament authors, we'll read about the idea of the race being set out before us. Jeremiah stuck with the race that was set out before him. And I would argue for you that his race is, is not any of what we will have to run. He ran a very difficult Race. Here's what the author of Hebrews has to say. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now this comes after the chapter, the heroes of the faith chapter, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with the perseverance for the race marked out for us. You need to hear this morning. Jeremiah had a very specific race marked out for him, and he was going to have to run that race. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he had a very specific race marked out for him that he had to follow through and run towards the prize. The author of Hebrews has a very specific race in mind that they're going to have to run that out. There's a very specific race for you in your life that God is calling you to that you need to run out as well. Now, I want to use this morning as an illustration. Uh, you see it here on my left, your right. This is a bicycle, and this is a mountain bike, and and this afternoon, it's a Sunday, I will be rooting for the Buffalo Bills, as most of you will be, uh, the Buffalo Bills football, football team, because I'm from Buffalo, New York. 
Uh, but on Saturdays, I root for the Clemson, South Carolina football team, the Clemson Tigers, because I spent a fair amount of my time there in Clemson, South Carolina. We had to decide to root for them. I am also aware that Clemson got knocked off last night by Notre Dame. Stop clapping your hands, Bevy. I know that you're here. Yes. You had to make it obvious. Yes, I know that they lost last night. I also know that's the first time that they've lost in the regular season in almost 30 games. So uh, that's an important thing. Full disclaimer, they were terrible when I lived there, and it's been fun and exciting to watch them since. Uh, in Clemson, outside of the university, again, I didn't go to Clemson, but I did uh, go a lot of times and interact with students on campus, as well as right next to the campus in the Clemson forest was something called the Isaquina Trail or the Isaquina mountain biking uh, area. And so I spent a lot of my time biking and training and spending time uh, getting familiar with trails there in Clemson, South Carolina. I got to the point where they have about 10 to 15 miles worth of trails at that time in that area, and I got pretty good at it and got pretty strong, and I decided I wanted to ride in my first mountain bike race. And so I headed up north of the border into North Carolina, and there is the DuPont National Forest there, and there was going to be a mountain bike race there. And so I registered, I entered, and it was said it was a moderate level of difficulty, and I felt like I was all set to go. I had been training there, Isaquina, and I was going to be all set. Uh, well, I told you that the, the mileage was about 10 to 15 miles, and so uh, when I took off at the beginning of the race, when the gun went off, I chased down the lead riders as well as I could, and I stayed with them for as long as I possibly could. But these guys were strange, strange people. Uh, when we got to difficult parts of the ride where people were starting to get clumped together, they were picking up their bikes, putting them on the shoulder, and running up the hill. And that didn't make any sense to me. Why wouldn't you get off and walk like the rest of us? And so uh, it was a very difficult thing for me to keep up with them. And it should be no surprise that about 12 to 15 miles in and in the race, all of a sudden, all the riders just rode away. And I just pedaled and slogged and fought through uh, the rest of the race. It was very difficult for me. I suffered through uh, the finality of that race. Now, if it's any interest to you at all, here was the reality of it. It was a 38-mile race. I had no idea what I was getting into. Now, I'm using this as an illustration this morning. I have gone through more difficult things in my life than that one day on the bike in that race. And I know for many of you, you have gone through some very difficult things. You're coming this morning with some very difficult things on your mind that's around you and surrounding you. Uh, you might be dealing with uh, the fact that you know this year, uh, because of the pandemic, that Thanksgiving uh, is going to be canceled for you and your family. And you're just wrestling with that to say, I don't like this. I don't want this. This isn't what I was looking for. Uh, you also may be dealing, I know specifically in our church, we have a family dealing with someone who's lost a loved one uh, with COVID and they're in a different state and there's not even going to be a funeral and not going to be a way to be able to interact and respond with that. And so that's difficult. It's, it's frustrating and not knowing how to deal with that. So something as simple as a bike ride is trying to be a bigger analogy of some of the things that we go through in this life. As part of our human experience here on this earth, as, as Adam was told in the garden, that we're going to have to go through pain, go through suffering because of the sin nature that surrounds us. Some of you are very smart people and you, you, you understand what I'm talking about, but you're also saying, wait a minute, I thought we were in the book of Matthew. I thought we were in this sermon series called The New Normal. What on earth does this have to do with where we're at? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Uh, we are 
in a sermon series called The New Normal. And it is a sermon series that's based out of Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. But as we've been talking about, in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, the author has made all of these connections to all of this Old Testament literature and is making it all come alive right in front of us in Matthew 3 and 4. And then we get to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus starts making these statements. You have heard it said, but I will tell you there is something new that has arrived. Well, Matthew 3 and 4, we're making all of these connections to it. And interestingly enough, the author Matthew, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all have a different uh, way that they're going about telling the story of Christ. And Matthew and none of the other Gospel writers uh, quotes Jeremiah three different times in his book, and none of the other Gospel writers do. So that's important for us to pay attention to, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The three different times that he talks about Jeremiah, the first is when Jesus is a child and he is uh, pulled out and they escape to go to Egypt because there was the children were being killed in the land of Judea, Judea and they had to escape and get out because the King Herod was trying to kill all of the babies. As they are going out, Jeremiah is quoted about the weeping for Ramah. And, uh, and then the second uh, example we have is when uh, we have Peter's confession of Christ. We said, who do you say that I am? And he says, uh, you are either Elijah, uh, you are Moses, or you are one of the prophets prophets is what all of the other gospels say. But in Matthew's account of the gospel it says you are Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why would Matthew give us that little bit of detail? And then the last illustration we get is after Judas hangs himself and he is buried in the, in the, the plot of land that was given, the amount of money that was given for that land called the potter's field, Matthew goes on to tell us just like Jeremiah told us the price that was paid for the potter's So Matthew is giving us really uh, these different connections to Jeremiah, and we want to know why. Uh, So we also need to know that that Jeremiah, Matthew is connecting us to Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet or the suffering prophet. And so as we get in here this morning, you need to understand the deepness and the depth of the the sorrow that he is going through, and that's where we're going to go this morning. Again, he was called into uh, this job, this role of being a prophet when he's 18 years old. He says, I'm too young. I don't want to do this. And God says, you will do this. I've known you since you were in your mother's womb. And this is what you have been called to. And this is the life that you will live. So let's learn a little, little, bit, little bit this morning about Jeremiah and then learn how that will connect to your life and to mine as we look through that lens of what uh, is, is to be said here and how Matthew is making that connection for us as well. So if you've got your Bibles open, you're there in Jeremiah. Will you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 16? Now, Jeremiah is a unique book because it's not written uh, in a sequential order. It kind of pops all around because it's teaching us different things. But in Jeremiah 16, we learn more about the calling of Jeremiah. And you will see here in Jeremiah chapter 16 that he was called to a life of loneliness. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, starts like this. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry or have sons or daughters in this place, for they would die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like dung lying around on the ground. So he was going to be called to a life of loneliness. Now in that culture, certainly in their day, it was a dishonor to not be married or to have children. The children were uh, like feathers in their cap. Their children uh, were, were like uh, arrows in the quiver. Like the children were very, very important to them in that culture. And he was not going to marry and not going to have children. 
Ironically, even in the Hebrew, the original text that the Old Testament is written in, there is no word in biblical Hebrew, there is no word to describe a bachelor because it was one that would never have been used, would never have been uh, realized. And so he was being called to deny himself of family and of friends, knowing that if he had family, if he had a wife, if he had children, that they would die and be lying in the streets, it says, like dung lying on the ground. So he was going to be called to a life of loneliness. Secondly, he's being called to a life of sadness. Verse 5 picks it up here. For this is what the Lord says. Do not enter a house where there is a funeral meal. Do not go to mourn or to show sympathy, because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. A life of loneliness, a life of sadness. So when God is telling him not to show up for the funeral, you've got to understand, he is not supposed to show grief. Uh, this is abnormal. This is uh, pulling himself away from those who are going through tremendous loss. And not to show grief, we know now psychologically, certainly, of not being able to have closure for someone that you have loved, someone that you know, someone who's a part of your community, your family, and not being able to see that person at least be put into the ground to, to help close off that type of relationship. He was separating himself from all of that. And then that sadness could overwhelm him again because he's not able to get closure there. Why? Because death was going to be widespread. Death was going to be everywhere. It says death like, like dung lying in the streets. And Jeremiah was being called to face it all alone. So you can't come to the funeral. You can't come and commiserate with your friends and your family knowing that they too have lost someone. You're going to have to deal with this all by yourself. A life of loneliness. A life of sadness. Thirdly, a life of isolation. Picking up in verse 8. And do not enter a house where there is feasting and sit down to eat and drink. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Before your eyes and in your days, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in this place. So he was going to be detached from his family. He was going to be isolated from his family. Many of you have family members right now. Uh, who have gone through a summer trying to figure out how to plan a family wedding, and it's just not being able to figure it out, trying to reschedule, trying to move it. There's been a number of backyard weddings and things like that where it's just been entirely different than what anyone expected it to be. This was a situation that he was in right then that said, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. It actually had not happened yet. He was prophesying this to come, but God was calling him to live as if it had already happened. And so he was already going to remove himself from celebrations, from feasts, from weddings, and leave himself out of it, act as if it had already happened because the judgment was going to be so severe that his life would be a demonstration of what was to come. So he's being called to a life of loneliness, a life of sadness, and a life of isolation. This guy is a real downer, right? It's awful. Why on earth would God be asking him to do this? Well, that's really the question that they're asking in verse 10. Let's continue on. Why is this happening? When you tell the people all this and they ask you, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? 
And Jeremiah, his, his mind is blowing. Like he is fighting against, he said, why wouldn't you understand? Really, you have no idea why God would be uh, pouring out his judgment on you as a people? And he said now he realizes that his job, his responsibility as a prophet of the Lord is that he would have to speak and share why. Verse 11, here's why. It's because they've been and they've had a terrible example. Then they say to him, Then say to them, it is because your ancestors forsook me, declares the Lord. They followed other gods and they served and worshipped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. Now if you remember, one of the the epic most uh, uh, important experiences during the Israelites' uh, journey through the wilderness is when they were there in the wilderness at Mount Sinai and the voice of God is speaking to Moses. He was going to come down from the mountain carrying the tablets that would contain the Ten Commandments and as he's there on the mountain, the glory of God is around. The, The mountain is shaking. They can't even touch the foot of the mountain with being knocked dead instantaneously. What do they do? They fashion a calf out of their gold necklaces and earrings and begin worshiping that. They were a terrible example. Because your ancestors have forsook me, declares the Lord. They followed other gods and they worshiped them. But it's not just your parents. You are also a defiant people, continuing in verse 12. So you have behaved even more wickedly than your ancestors. Even more so, even more wickedly. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your evil hearts instead of obeying me. Now at this time, the kingdom is already divided. Jeremiah is there teaching and preaching and being able to be a prophet and be able to challenge them. That Thus saith the Lord, you need to correct yourself. The kingdom is already divided. They're already fighting amongst each other. And what are they doing? They're worshiping idols again and again and again. Idol worship is rampant everywhere you see. Jeremiah is calling him out to it. He said, you are following your evil hearts. You are stubborn instead of simply obeying me. And so what's the result? Well, here's the result. Verse 13 is a forsaken land. So I will throw you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your ancestors have ever known. And there you will serve your gods. He said, you can do that wherever you want, but it's not going to be here. You can serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Through the voice of Jeremiah, God is telling him, this is the promised land. This is the promised land that we walked across dry land in the sea to get to, that we went through the wilderness, and I fought for you, and as we came into the promised land, we crossed the Jordan River. Uh, My pastor used to call them the ites. We drove all of the ites out, all the different peoples who were here. They were all driven out before you. God's hand has fought before you. This land, this promised land, flowing with milk and honey, is no longer a place where you can stay. You do not reside here any longer. You are not welcome here. Get out. You can serve your gods day and night somewhere else and live in that forsaken land. However, I turned a page in my notes. You should see a a page turn in your mind, verse 14. However, the days are coming. Circle that word, 
star that word, mark that word. However, there is a change here in the text. The days are coming. There's a day of restoration coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land that I will give their ancestors." So the first half of that passage, verse 14, is actually looking at the exodus when they were being brought up out of Egypt. They were all familiar with that time frame. They had all studied that. They had learned that. They had been taught that over and over and over again. But the second part is talking about the exile. It had not happened yet. And he's talking about it, understanding that after you're pushed out, after you're forced out of this promised land to be able to go worship your gods, worship your idols, but you're not going to do it here. As surely as the Lord lives, uh, the Lord will bring you back and restore you to the land that I gave your ancestors. This is the day of restoration. And so how would it happen? Well, verse 16 is really a day of reckoning. You're going to see something unusual here. But now I will send for many fishermen, he says. Fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And after that I will send many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of every rock. Circle, underline, make a note, mark this. I will send for many fishermen. Does that make any sense to you? Does that sound like a warrior? Does that sound like he's sending for fishermen? The reality is, is what he's talking about here is these are headhunters. These are bounty hunters. They are going out and, and bringing back people to be able to say, there is a problem here. Th- these are the Mandalorians, if you know what I'm talking about. This is a day of reckoning. What are they going to do? Verse 17, my eyes are on all of their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and for their sin, because they have defiled my land with lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. This is why the fishermen, the hunters, are coming for you. And then... There's a pivot, there's a turn, there's a discussion. Jeremiah starts to talk about as he kind of thinks about what he's saying and has reminded himself and shares with us himself this idea of refuge found in God. He makes a connection to Psalm 18. He makes a connection to Psalm 46 where we learn that God is our refuge, our strength, our help in time of trouble. And so using that as a launching point, I want to make this statement so you kind of see what's going to happen as we connect the dots back uh, the rest of the way across is this. Jesus doesn't only make, excuse me, Jesus doesn't only make all things right. Jesus makes all things new. He doesn't just make all things right. He makes all things new. Turn a few pages over to Jeremiah chapter 31. You're going to see the connection that, that Jeremiah starts to make. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they, what? They broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them. No, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
<coughs> this is the new covenant that Jeremiah is prophesying that will come. Now, I brought the bicycle. I brought it as an illustration this morning. I wanted you to see it. I wanted you to get a, a feel for what I'm talking about here this morning. This is not the bike that I was riding 12 or 15 years ago in, in uh, Issaquina Forest or, or in uh, Clemson, South Carolina. This, but this is a 15-year-old bicycle. Uh, and it's one of those things, every once in a while you'll find these, you'll be watching, uh, I watch on Craigslist, watch on Facebook to be able to see if something comes up. And this was something I found on Facebook that was 15 years old and it was in mint condition. Uh, there was a husband who was all excited that he knew that when he first got married that his wife would love all the things that he loved and she would get excited about all the things that he wanted to do. And the two of them would get on their bicycles and they would ride off into the sunset. But what really happened was that he continued to ride off into the sunset and she stayed at home in her bubble bath. And this bike stayed in the garage and was never used for 15 years. Mint condition, brand new, 15 years old. Wipe a little dust off of it. That was all that was going on with this bicycle. And I got to buy it. It was perfect condition. When I went and looked at it, I just realized that there is absolutely nothing that I would have a problem with with this bicycle. That is, until I brought it home. What happened yesterday was that my daughter and I, who this bike was bought for her, it's a small size frame because it's a women's uh, frame. It's a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to ride if you're not as tall. So we went out, we decided to go mountain biking at Hunter's Creek. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's near the end of the 400. It's a beautiful spot, Hunter's Creek State Park, to be able to go and go mountain biking. And we were making our way there. We're driving down the 400. Uh, she had the music blaring. We were singing along, or she was singing along anyway, to the track of Hamilton, and she was very excited about it. And so I wasn't paying any attention until in the rearview mirror, I noticed all of a sudden there was cars swerving around in every direction behind me. What had happened was that my bicycle had come off the back of my bike rack on the middle of the 400. And so this bicycle, which was once in mint condition, was now lying in the center of traffic at 70 miles an hour. And so I came to a complete stop. A lot farther away from the bike than I would have expected, going 70 miles an hour. When you come to a complete stop, it was nearly half a mile behind me. So I put the, the vehicle in reverse on the shoulder of the road and start backing up, realizing as I'm backing up, I'm backing towards the traffic that's coming at me. It's not a good situation to be in. And as I'm going back towards it, as the cars begin to swerve around, and I, I know that it's just a matter of time before I see the bike hit by a semi-truck and it's just going to blow into a million pieces, as I get very close to it, I come to a stop and I'm waiting for an opening to be able to get out of the car and run out and get it. When I hear the screech of the tires, where there was a uh, F-150 or a large pickup truck of some sort that was trying to not run into the vehicles in front of him. And so he took his escape route, which was the shoulder of the road, not knowing that I was sitting in the shoulder of the road, just to have that truck screech to a halt only a few feet behind our vehicle. There's not a good spot to be in. And so I got out of the car after that vehicle, you know, waved nice things to me as he went on his, his merry way. No one got hurt. I ran out, dragged the bike off of the road, and I will tell you, it was no longer in mint condition. This bicycle is not what it used to be. It is not right anymore. When we got to where we were going, I got the bike off and we worked on it for a while, got a few of the pieces back together and put the components back together. We were able to go for a ride yesterday. But it was no longer in the condition that it was in when I got it just a few weeks ago. 
What is that statement I helped you see maybe this morning? Is that Jesus doesn't only make all things right. He makes all things new. You see, when I got there to the woods and I started working on this bike, maybe I made it right. I made it usable, but it's still got scratches and, and bumps and, and all types of things that aren't right anymore about it. So I made it right, but Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. Now what Jeremiah has told us here, he's saying that, that the Jewish law was, was written down. And he talks about how, if we think about how the Ten Commandments were brought down from the mountain, the hand of God had really written the Ten Commandments on those tablets that Moses brought down off of the mountain. The rest of the, the, the covenant that had been written out, the rest of the law that had been written out by Moses was written down for all to see. But now he says that God was going to write it down on his people's hearts. So to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, why is Matthew making these connections? Why? Because he wants us to see and wants it to be obvious to us that Jesus is the Messiah. Because as Matthew is writing his book, it is near uh, the time frame, it's very close to, to AD 70 when Jerusalem would fall, when the temple would collapse. It's all coming upon him, just like Jeremiah is calling for what would be the collapse of the temple and the collapse of Jerusalem. He points to Jesus when he sees Peter's confession. He, he points the next few verses to be able to talk about how Jesus turned his face resolutely and set towards the cross, knowing and telling his disciples that he would have to suffer there, just like Jeremiah, the suffering prophet. He gives us all the detail of the Sermon on the Mount, helps us to be able to see Jesus as the prophet standing on the mountain, just like Moses who stood on the mountain and be able to get the very words from God there on the mountain. He gives us all the detail of the 12 disciples that he calls, and he gathers 12 disciples. What is that reminiscent of? The 12 tribes of Israel. When he tells us at the beginning of chapter 3 to be able to see the 40 days that he spends in the wilderness, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of Elijah and the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness, Moses and the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness, and the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert. Matthew is making all of these connections for us. And then he tells us, this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. We see this new calling of the disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they dropped their nets and they followed him. Now think about it. If you're in first century biblical times, you're there, and there's this guy gathering people, and you've heard that he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and you heard he's got 12 disciples following him, and then uniquely it seems like he's also gathered a specific number, a high number, if you look at the number of the disciples who are fishermen. Don't you think they start going, wait a minute, who does this guy think he is? And Matthew's saying, he thinks he's the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, the begats of Matthew be able to tell the genealogy of Jesus to help you make that connection. He is the Messiah. He is the one. And he was not calling all of these fishermen together so that they could be headhunters. He was calling them together so that they would do what? So they would go out and fish for people. Because fishermen, particularly in the Greek, had to do the idea of fish were actually the Gentiles. 
that they were going to go out and they were going to reach the Gentiles and they were going to bring them together. Hebrews chapter 9 puts it this way. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he who has died as what? As a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see, when he calls the fishermen together, He's not calling them together to go out as headhunters, to be able to go out and get all of those who have uh, turned away from God. No, instead he's bringing them all together and he's putting himself down as the ransom for your sins and for mine. They weren't there for a reckoning. They were there as a new calling, part of the new covenant where true restoration would actually come. In the words of Jeremiah, this prophet who had seen tremendous loss, tremendous pain, loneliness, suffering. He writes the words in Lamentation chapter 3 that sums up really what his life had been and why he was able to go and get up every single day and go back and face what he was up against. And this is what it says, chapter 3, verse 19. I remember my affliction. I remember my wandering. I remember the bitterness and all the gall. I well remember them. He didn't ignore it. My soul is downcast within me. In previous parts of Lamentations 2 and 3, he talks about there being gravel in his mouth, the taste of gravel. But verse 21 says this, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Friends, when we, we look at what Jesus has done, when he paid the ransom for your sins and for mine, that is him being faithful. When we have mornings like this where it is very clear that the sun came up this morning, we are reminded no matter what you're going through, whatever trials you're up against, friends, no matter what trials Jeremiah was up against, that the faithfulness was going to come day after day, year after year, month after month. We are not consumed because we serve a Lord who is faithful. And Christ is the mediator of the new covenant where he was gathering all together and he said, I'll take the sins of the world on my shoulders. And therefore, we have hope. So this morning, Lord, we pray. And we ask you, Lord, there are many reasons to be concerned, many reasons to be fatigued, many reasons to be fragmented, many reasons to lament. And there is a time for that. But Lord, as we go through these things, as we face life in a sinful world, as sinful people, Lord, in this human skin that is corruptible and damaged, Lord, let us not be consumed. Lord, give us hope, hope that we find in Christ, hope that comes every morning because you have been faithful. We love you, Lord. We know and we trust that not only do you make all things right, but you make all things new. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.